Well, very good morning to you. Thank you for being here. Welcome to Covenant. Little theologians, I'm going to make a sports illusion. I never do that. Always cars, never sports. But why don't you work on this drawing over the course of the sermon? The sermon is uh, the sermon. This passage, words of our Lord Jesus, is all about obstacles in life. Life is full of obstacles. But I want you to uh, draw, let's say, a soccer player going from one end of the field all the way to the other, field, uh, other end of the field. Okay, pitch. One end of the pitch to the other side of the pitch. And there's no one to oppose the soccer player. No one. How hard could that be? I guess you could do the same thing with basketball, right? All the way down the court. No one to oppose that player. You could do it with football run all the way down the field. No one's there to stop you. You'll certainly make a goal, a basket, a touchdown, because there's no one to oppose you. Draw a picture of that while we listen to Jesus describe the kind of life that's actually not like that. We are opposed in this Christian life. Our passage this morning is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. This is the longest uninterrupted body of teaching from Jesus in Mark's gospel, and we are going to divide it uh, almost in half. We're going to uh, look this morning at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, thank you for speaking to us This word is rather challenging, but we uh, appeal to you as we always do that you would give us understanding appropriate to your purpose and your will in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you use me as you see fit to that end? We thank you in Jesus' name for speaking to us. Amen. So the passage is from Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed 
to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of our Lord. can't remember if I thanked you uh, already, but thank you for going without me last week. I had the pleasure of spending some time uh, with my mother and stepfather, and uh, my mom uh, showed me uh, some of the things that uh, she had collected from my uh, grandmother. My grandmother uh, is uh, in Oklahoma City, but mom has uh, some of her items and was showing them to me, and I had never uh, actually seen a war ration book. Maybe some of you have seen them. Maybe some of you have had to live according to them. But I'd never seen one before. And I got to uh, hold it and and, and flip through it. It's a a collection of uh, little uh, stickers, little stamps. And some of them are numbered one way and some of them are numbered another way. And some of them have uh, uh, A through F and 1 through 5, I think. But it's all very official. There's little warnings on the front and the back of the war ration book that say that it belongs to the U.S. government, that you're not to uh, sell these, uh, don't uh, buy food if you don't need to. It's all very official. There's a threat of uh, punishment with, I believe, it was, I mean, imagine in the 1940s, a $10,000 fine or punishment of jail for not using the war ration book in a way that you should. It occurred to me that oftentimes people will look at the Bible as if it's some kind of war ration book. It's uh, something that tells us how to behave uh, day by day by day. But in this war ration book, note this, there's there's nothing uh, that is from the U.S. government that guarantees we're going to get the bad guys. There's nothing that uh, gives an update on where we are in the war progress. There's nothing that says uh, these guys are really, really bad and boy, are we going to get them. There's no guarantee, for instance, of when this war is going to end. There's nothing like that. 
And yet the Bible is not just a collection of war rations for you to spend day by day by day. The Bible is full of promises of the victory that is secured in Jesus Christ. And the war ration book, it doesn't do that. But this speech of Jesus in Mark chapter 13 does a lot of that. It guarantees that the victory is won, even though day by day in the Christian life, well, we will live in very unsettled times. You know, the vantage point of this uh, teaching of Jesus is actually very important. You'll uh, see at the beginning that Jesus, he leaves the temple, and he's actually sitting on a hillside that overlooks the, the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And as he is uh, viewing the city from afar, he's actually viewing the disciples very closely. They're with him, taking in this view. And Jesus, he takes in the view from afar, but he sees very clearly what is going on in the disciples' hearts. They say in verse 1 to Jesus, Look, teacher! Actually commanding Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus, he knows immediately where their hope lies. Their heart lies with uh, some kind of structure, some kind of institution, some kind of greatness of Judaism, uh, some kind of majesty of the city of Jerusalem, some kind of hope of political independence, something other than Jesus. And Jesus says, whatever you place your hope in, it won't last. And here's what the passage is about. The passage is telling us to beware of where we place our hope as Christian people. Earthly power, every earthly power will let us down, but Jesus will never let us down. Unlike a ration book that only gives us day-to-day instruction, Jesus, he provides that in this passage to be sure, but he also makes promises and gives us hope. I want us to begin by just uh, uh, taking uh, very close attention in actually the details of the heart uh, of the disciples. You see, the disciples, uh, when they are looking at the temple and at the buildings, uh, this is not just them being enamored with architecture. These are Galilean villagers for sure profoundly impressed by the city of Jerusalem, the structures in the city of Jerusalem. But there's more that's going on. They're placing their confidence, their pride, and their hope in the temple and in Jerusalem. And Jesus, he has to remind them of the finiteness of the temple and Jerusalem. And that's why he says so starkly in verse 2, these great buildings will be thrown down. Now, it could be that this is exaggerated language to snap them out of this idolatry or near idolatry. It could be that's what he's doing. Almost like when we recognize that a a brother or sister in Christ seems to be consumed about their purchase of a new house or a new car or a new job. And uh, we feel as loving brothers and sisters that we need to remind them to snap out of it. Remember, Jesus is more important than the new house, the new car, the new job. And it could be that Jesus is just doing that. But on the other hand, maybe Jesus is speaking literally. 
that Jerusalem is really on the blocks for destruction and that the stones really will be taken down. And if that's the case, he doesn't want his disciples to be caught off guard. He wants them to know where their hope lies. Again, the teaching here is not to scare, but to remind. It's not to give a list of things to do, but to show the great promises of God to be our great provider. Now, isn't it interesting that this news in verse 2 really does bother the disciples? And uh, we uh, learn then that four of the disciples, they actually uh, seem to crowd around Jesus and they ask him uh, privately, uh, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Apparently, they really believe that the temple will last forever. They really believe that the city of Jerusalem is a a permanent city. Do we think that the Bible promises for certain that there is any man-made construction that will last for all eternity? Well, the disciples do. And these four disciples, uh, you can hear them in verse 4, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign. There's a lesson here before we move on. These four represent us. As Christian people, we can always place our hope in something or someone other than Jesus. You feel this temptation in your life, Christian, don't you? I feel this temptation, and not just a mere temptation, but a powerful urge to trust the things of the earth rather than, well, rather than my Jesus. The disciples are standing next to the very hope of the world. And what are they doing as they stand next to the very hope of the world? They're fixated on the hope that is not their true hope. They're fixating on the world's hope. Well, what the world thinks is their hope. And here they are standing right next to the true hope. Beware, Jesus says to his disciples, of where you place your hope. Now that's, that's sobering, isn't it? But that needs to be in our minds and in our hearts as we dive into this passage. And what I want to do in this passage is I want to describe what Jesus says Christian hope ultimately looks like and also how it is that this kind of hope is possible in my life. So how uh, or what does Christian hope look like? And look what Jesus does beginning at verse 5. He begins to unfold this future that is very unsettling, but it's actually sprinkled throughout with very precious practical instructions. And uh, there's four of them that I want us to see. uh, We've already uh, set our hearts on where the disciples' hearts are, placing their hope in earthly things. But now we're looking at what Jesus says Christian hope actually does look like. And he says four things about Christian hope. He says in verse 5 this, and we'll run through these. By the way, all four of these are actual commands of Jesus. They're verbs that are employed in such a way that Jesus is commanding his disciples. He says in verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. See to it 
Jesus is being very serious here. This is about uh, testing people, testing messages, uh, testing uh, visuals. Uh, This is about acknowledging that there are charlatans now. There will be charlatans to come. Uh, Test them against the teaching of Jesus. See that no one leads you astray. Jesus is giving you, in verse 5, permission to dial up your criticism critique the messages around you. Uh, Surely the the critiquing of those messages has to do with uh, weighing those messages against the teaching of Jesus. The the faith once and for all believed, we'll read later in the New Testament. For us, see to it that no one leads you astray by testing their message against the Bible. The second is this. Jesus says, do not be alarmed in verse 7. This is about news, about uh, things that you hear are happening. And Jesus says, don't be frightened. Don't be nervous. Don't be anxious. Don't be terrified. Even though you hear about catastrophic events, even if the end is far away, wars and news of impending wars that actually, that's normal. That's a part of your life. And just as you're to see that no one leads you astray by weighing messages with the Bible, do not be alarmed in anything, even catastrophic news. He goes on in verse 9, he says, be on your guard. Now that word for guard may best be understood in terms of paying close attention. Those who wish to persecute you, they're everywhere. everywhere. But notice Jesus, he doesn't say how to get out of the way of persecution, only that you need to see it, pay attention to it, expect it. You may not know from which angle it comes, but assume it will. To be on your guard is to count on persecution happening. And then the fourth, before I tie these all together, he says in verse 11, do not be anxious about what you are to say, but do say, and then he goes on. But the, the command word is don't be anxious. This is about speaking and speaking confidently. Jesus says don't worry about what you're going to say, but actually trust the Holy Spirit that in the right moment, the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you are to say. And if that's true, stop worrying. Let me say, uh, all together here, what Jesus is doing is he's actually providing instruction for life in this unsettled future. And notice how pastoral Jesus is. Jesus has some really hard things to say to the disciples, but he's giving them actually very practical applications for how to deal with those hard things. And this ultimately is what it looks like to express Christian hope. Christians are hopeful in this way. They they use their Bible to critique every message that they hear. They read and study their Bible. They know their Bible well. Christians aren't frightened about anything. They're not frightened about those things that are real. They're not frightened about those things that are potential. There is a a kind of calmness that a Christian is to exhibit. 
Christian hope also expects persecution. We're not surprised by it. We're unsure what it'll look like. We're unsure if we'll lose our money or our job or our lives. But we expect it. And then finally, as Christians, we speak without worrying what to say. How many of us have made the mistake of saying absolutely nothing because we're, we're, we're not the best apologists or we don't know our Bible as well as we ought to know our Bible? But Jesus says, stop worrying about what to say. Speak. Now, this is how Jesus is describing what Christian hope looks like. Now, in order to tie these together, I want you to imagine that illustration that our little theologians are working on. If there are no obstacles, if the, if the future isn't unsettled, but if the future is very settled and safe, this application that Jesus has offered suddenly becomes effortless. We're very willing to do it. I'll critique what I hear, but really what's the point? Every teacher is fine. I'm surrounded by good teaching, whatever I mean by the word good. And I won't be frightened because nothing bad will actually happen. Nothing bad has happened before or that happened to different people. Nothing bad is going to happen, so I won't be frightened. I'll look for persecution, but it hasn't really happened before, and it mostly happens to others, and I'm sure it won't happen here. And I'll speak openly with no worry at all because I'll know that I have a very conciliatory audience that is happy to hear about Jesus. If there's no obstacles at all, these applications, we can understand them, but that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? Jesus is saying these applications, they actually have to be practiced when there are plenty of obstacles. Jesus says that there will be wars. Jesus says that nations will conflict with nations, kingdoms with kingdoms. Jesus says that even nature will be uncooperative. There will be earthquakes and famine. Jesus says that the persecution will not only come, but the persecution will be organized, written into legal framework, judicial. There will be trials, and there will also be family strife, division within our families. None of this needs to be cast into the distant future. It was now for the disciples, and it's now for us. Beware of where you place your hope, because every earthly power is going to let you down. And we express our Christian hope by critiquing with the Bible, by not being frightened about anything, by expecting, assuming persecution will come, and by speaking without worry. How can I do that in a dangerous place? Well, Jesus tells us. Just as there are four applications of hope for us sprinkled in this very unsettling future, there are also four reasons for that confidence sprinkled in as well. And this uh, here is where we see that Jesus will never let us down. Look at verse 7. There may be wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. Do you see that in verse 7? The end is not yet. 
That is a note of confidence. Who can promise this? Who can promise when exactly the end will come and when the end won't come? God is sovereign and God is always in charge. There is nothing that escapes his notice and things that that you see unfolding before you in an unsettled future, these events are never chance. God is in control. And do you see how that promise, the kind of promise that doesn't show up in a war ration book, that kind of promise is what enables us to live with Christian hope. There's three others. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, you will bear witness. You will bear witness. Persecution will come. It may even be judicial, and it may even involve very important, significant, powerful people weighing upon you with the weight of their thumb. But you will bear witness. Even if you're beaten, even if you're killed, you will bear witness, Christian. What does that mean? It means that, yes, there's persecution, but your life will never be wasted. Even if you're beaten and bloodied and killed. You know, that word for bearing witness, you understand, is where we get our word for martyr. But even without words, Jesus promises that merely dying for him is a kind of testimony. Not only is God sovereign in verse 7, in verse 9, God makes sure that our life as Christians is not a waste. Look at verse 10. In all of this, the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. Isn't it amazing how positive verse 10 is in a section of Scripture that seems so very dire? This is a goal that no one person can deliver on, the proclaiming of the gospel to all the nations. It's a promise that the Christian community will spread. The Christian community will invade the entire world. God will ensure that the gospel, the message of Jesus, the saving message of God's mercy and grace will go into every nation and every kingdom. Even as we live amidst every obstacle, God will continue to save people through the gospel. God is sovereign. He guarantees that your life won't be a waste, and he will save people through the gospel. And the fourth is this in verse 13. Finally, no Christian is expected to defeat every persecution. No Christian is expected to overturn the nations. No Christian is expected to establish a new kingdom enterprise. Wonderful language. But the objective for Christian life is this, endure. That word for endure could be understood simply as wait, be patient. The one who endures to the end, well, that's not the person that needs to be a spiritual hero of the faith, a Hudson Taylor or a C.S. Lewis or a Billy Graham. This is just the one who lasts, who waits for the, for the will of the Lord. God, you see, has already won the battle. There's nothing for you, Christian, to conquer. There's nothing for you, uh, to new territory for you to uh, put a new flag in. The one who endures is not the spiritual hero, but the little person, the Christian who waits 
a Christian who knows that God himself has already conquered the world. I want us to hear these four confidences as the kind of confidences that enable us to uh, live with Christian hope. The confidences, confidences, again, are this. God's in control. No Christian life is wasted. He still saves people in the gospel, and he calls us to endure, not conquer. And all of this should lighten our hearts. Christian hope, living day by day in an unsettled world, it's not dependent upon human effort, but the promise of God to save us in Jesus Christ and to bring to us the consummation of that saving work. God is at work before us. God will never fail. And Jesus is our king. He's sufficient. Let me tell you again. This is what the passage is about. Beware of where you place your hope. Every earthly power will let you down. But Jesus, he'll never let you down. I wonder if the very beginning of this passage, the first four verses, and then the very uh, last section of this passage, verses 14 through 23, uh, actually match. There's a sense in which verses 14 through 23, this discussion that's very confusing about an abomination of desolation, I wonder if this passage is really to address the, the concerns of those four disciples. They are the ones who, after all, asked in verse 4 for a sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus, he offers a sign. He says in verse 14 that there is an abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, if that isn't a confusing phrase, I don't know what is. The phrase comes from a few, uh, two, maybe three passages in Daniel about a man who uh, profanes the temple in a unique way. A, a A detestable thing is done in the presence of the temple that ultimately causes the devastation of that temple. It's something terrible, Daniel says, that leads to something worse. Now, in verse 14... Mark, he seems to interject this editorial comment. Do you see where in verse 14 he says, let the reader understand? This isn't the first time that Mark has done this. He's inserted himself into this. Let the reader understand. And it may be that Mark, Matthew does this as well. It may be that both of them are also copying an expression in Daniel. Jesus is employing an expression in Daniel, and so too is Mark and Matthew. And what that expression, let the reader understand, does is it reminds readers about the prophetic nature of what's about to come. And what they're saying to the, to the reader is they're saying that, look, this is, this is going to take a slightly different mode of reading and understanding. It's prophetic. But make note of this. It is still practical. It still has a direct benefit to you. Read it as prophecy, but pay attention. Now, that's an awful lot to read into that expression, let the reader understand. I I realize that. We need to ask, what is it that Jesus is referring to? Is this about an actual historic event of the temple being profaned, or is Jesus being uh, metaphorical? And if it is an event, does it happen in the lifetime of the disciples, in the lifetime of Mark's readers, or is it an event further down the timeline, like the second coming? Let me tell you what I believe this is. 
There were a couple of events in the history of Judaism uh, during the lives of the disciples in which there was a profanation of the temple. There were uh, bad, wicked, sacrilegious things that were happening in the temple. One of these things uh, happened about seven years after the death of Jesus when the emperor Caligula, he threatened to put a statue of himself in the temple, but he didn't. And then there was an event later than that when uh, Jewish zealots demanded that the Jewish people would uh, rise up against Rome. And these Jewish zealots, they themselves actually occupied the temple, roamed about freely in the Holy of Holies, and installed for themselves a sacrilegious, non-Levitical priest. That happened in the life of the disciples. The truth of the matter is that the temple has been profaned in a number of ways. But here's what I think this this, uh, uh, passage of abomination of desolation actually refers to. In AD 70, a Roman general and future emperor of the name Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. You remember your classical history at all? At Titus, he laid siege to Jerusalem for five months. He invaded the city. He completely ransacked the temple, burned most everything to the ground. Now, I believe that the focus here in verses 14 through 23 actually ties to the request of those four disciples. And this is the very specific answer to those four disciples. You want a sign? Here is a sign. And Jesus is referring to an event that hasn't been witnessed yet, but one day will in AD 70. Titus himself will stand in the Holy of Holies. It's reported that when Titus and his army came into Jerusalem, more than a million Jews were killed. Nearly 100,000 Jews became slaves, but every citizen was considered a Roman prisoner after this five-month attack. And maybe you've heard of the event at Masada when Jews took their own lives. It was General Titus who was pursuing them, surrounded them, such that they would be so desperate that they would take their own lives. The entire population of Jerusalem was significantly displaced. Judaism was completely altered in A.D. 70. The entire sacrificial system had to be reworked in light of the destruction of the temple. And to this day, has that temple been rebuilt? It hasn't. So from 14 to 23, Jesus is prophesying about an event in the near future. He has this knowledge by the Holy Spirit, presumably. How else would he? And he is telling his disciples who had asked for a sign, this is the sign. Now the sign is terrifying, but the sign is still merciful, isn't it? Though Jesus' language is sharp, Jesus is giving them that sign. He's telling them how bad it's going to be. The destruction, it will be unprecedented, even worse than that of Babylon in the 6th century. Now Jesus, he's shocking the disciples in one way, almost punishing them for having asked for a sign. This is not something that they're to worry about. Jesus gives them four practical applications for what it looks like to live in Christian hope. And he's given them four uh, uh, pictures of the reason for their confidence in that hope. But he knows that those disciples have placed their hope in the things of the city of Jerusalem. And he wants to shock his disciples and even punish them for their foolish reliance upon the temple and the city. But this Jesus has that same authority to say to us what will unfold in the future. 
And he's not given us those details. He has said that there will be persecution. He has said that there will be strife in our families as we say yes to Jesus Christ. He is saying that discipleship will be hard. But do you want to know all of the details about that hardness? Do you? And if you do, I wonder if that just evidences where your heart is. Whatever happens in the future, Jesus is with you. Whatever happens in the future, Jesus has won. Whatever happens in the future, you will be more protected than any of your strategy and planning can guarantee you. But these four disciples, they want to know a sign. And the sign is graphic. But what the sign does tell them is this. Beware, my disciples, of where you place your hope. Every earthly power will let you down. But I will never, I will never let you down. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, this morning, would we ask ourselves, where is our hope? Oh, Father, where is our hope? For those who are believers, followers of Jesus Christ, would you uh, help us to ask that question of ourselves sincerely and to confess to you where our hope is? And would you help us to walk in the confidence of your sovereign care? And Father, for those who are not believers, would they also ask that question with great sincerity, where is your hope? Thank you for meeting us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.